Last week, we began to dig deeper into chapter 4 of Galatians, and something happened. We actually came across a very remarkable passage and kind of stopped us dead in our tracks, a passage that is revolutionary. It really was. This, you think of Paul, who was given this thorn in the flesh. You think about the fact of all these awesome revelations he was given that he had to bear this thorn. And we got to see last week one of these beautiful revelations. And that revelation was that Abraham's two wives are more than just historicity. They're more than just Abraham's wives and recorded for us to see how it transpired. It's more than that. It was a lot more than that. The Apostle Paul actually reveals that Hagar and Sarah actually represent two covenants. Two completely different covenants. And that is an awesome thing to think about. Well, last week we looked at Hagar. And we started looking at the characteristics that she bears. The DNA, if you will. Her genetic makeup. Those components, and, and I say that of the old covenant. We started to look at those principles, really primary principles that govern the old covenant. Things such as the Ten Commandments, the Aseret HaDevarim. Huge component in regard uh, to the old covenant. The fact that these, the Aseret HaDevarim, these were put on stone tablets, right? They were put on stone. This is how they were preserved. And then, of course, we have the temple, absolutely central have them make me a sanctuary that i might dwell among them this is one of the most important components of the old covenant it was as i mentioned before it was the very symbol of relationship in fact this was the very symbol that god of israel was their god and that the jewish people israel was his people it was the very marking of that this is where they would go up and meet with God. This is where they went to pray. And then we looked at mediator, another key component. And I want you to think about something, even in Yeshua's day. So you're talking about Mount Sinai to even the time of Yeshua. Moses, Moshe, was the mediator. And just think about this. All the way through that time, yes, we understand that he died in the wilderness. He died on the mountain. I get that, but even who he was and what was given to him, his legacy, it went on. The, the, the rabbis talk about this in Perkei vote that the authority of Moshe went from Moshe to Joshua. Joshua gave it to the elders. The elders gave it to the judges. The judges gave it to the prophets, and the prophets gave it to the men of the great assembly. I mean, that great assembly that we talked about in our, in our opening statement, okay, or at the beginning of the series. The men of the greatest, what, the Sunni Drion, the, the Sanhedrin. And this existed in Yeshua's day. And that takes you to Matthew 23. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And so on a very real level, and I share that with you because on a very, very real level, Moses, he never stopped being the mediator. Despite him going away, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. And then we looked at the institution of the Aaronic priesthood. And what that really mean, what meant, it, 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 the, the people would seek the law, the Torah, from their mouth. That was an awesome thing. They were the ones that kept Israel in relationship with God by making atonement so that God would not separate himself from his people. 
They had, they were critically important. They, they did the temple, they, they went through the temple services. This is who they were. And then, and, and of course, we got the last one, which is affiliated to the Aaronic priesthood. You have the temple sacrifices. Another central principle to the old covenant, you had to have the shedding of blood. You know, the priests, yes, they would facilitate the atonement. They would do this. But they needed an animal. So you think about Yom Kippur. The priests laid their hands and confessed all the sins of Israel. The goat would bear the iniquity of Israel. And then the goats were killed or the lambs were killed. And we even have a heifer. This is where you think of Numbers 19. The ashes of the red heifer. The only way that we can get purified and not cut off from God from touching a dead body is by the water of purification, which included the death of the heifer. So sacrifices, these blood sacrifices were instrumental for forgiveness of sins, instrumental for keeping them in relationship. So these are the five key elements of the Old Covenant. Well, today we are going to move from Hagar and we're going to move and start talking about Sarah. And we're starting to talking about the elements within the New Covenant. And I'm going to tell you something, it is only then When you put these two women side by side, Hagar next to Sarah, the old covenant next to the new covenant, where we really begin to get a true understanding how all of this works. And when I say all of it, I mean faith, I mean grace, I mean how Torah even operates under the new covenant. I mean, it brings so many things to light. It brings so much clarity to waters that frankly are very, very muddied in this generation. And so with that said, and with no further ado, we're going to break into this. And uh, we're going to go to Jeremiah 31.31. And probably the most prolific passage, most of us have memorized it, in regard to the, the, the new covenant. Well, this is what it says. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, he specifically says new covenant. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, I want to show you what this looks like in the Hebrew. This is Brit Chadashah. Brit Chadashah. I challenge you to do a word study on Chadash. And what you will find is that this translation is excellent. Chadash means new, and I want to be very clear, in the context of brand new. It is a brand new covenant. This is vitally important. I'm going somewhere with this. Because I am well aware of many, many teachers out there. I shouldn't say many, many. There are some teachers out there and their teachings that are coming out and attempting to seduce people and tell them it is not a chadashah per se, as, as, as the text says, a new, but it is a renewed covenant. It's renewed. Okay? I want to be very clear. As we look at this passage right now, and as we continue, the passage, the immediate context, does not allow for that understanding. And actually speaks directly against that. The things we are going to be looking at today in regard to the Brit Chadashah do not allow for that. You're going to see that. If there's anything we're going to establish today, is that it isn't renewed. It is absolutely a brand new covenant. Now, to be sympathetic, I need you to understand that the motive 
And I, I, I understand it. The motive behind this renewed covenant and what's being purported, I sympathize and I agree with it. See, because there are people in the arena, in you know, Hebrew Roots arena, that are a little frustrated, shall I say, with traditional Christianity and their interpretation, and we talked about this, their interpretation of what the new covenant is. See, they oversimplify it. They simply look at it. This is the new covenant, and it, what it means is Christ did away with the law. This is what we see. So now you have these other people on this other side in this, in this uh, Hebrew Ritz arena saying, whoa, whoa, time out. Time out. That's not what the new covenant is. The Torah is still valid. And in regard to that mode, I stand with them. Yes. But let me be clear on something. And listen to me very, very carefully. Because it will serve you well as you go through and you become a student of the word. As you begin to study the Torah. You cannot establish truth by peddling a fallacy. Do you understand that? Do not get caught. Do not get seduced. You may simply know the truth that, well, the stance that Christianity is taking today is very scary, and they're doing away with the Torah. That doesn't mean you take the liberty to create a whole new doctrine and start twisting Scripture just to prove your point that, no, 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 the Torah isn't done away with. See, because the reality is if you stand on truth, stand on the Word. Stand on the Word. Let the Word do the debating. Don't get caught into this. And so I see this happening where a lot of well-intentioned people in trying to defend the Torah, and I support defending the Torah, but they're getting caught in the crossfire. They're getting caught creating stumbling blocks for other people who are investigating this, who are unfortunately going to get their information from online rather than in the book. And so these create a lot of stumbling blocks. And I'm going to tell you right now, for any Christian, Christian scholars that know Hebrew, they know how to read and speak Hebrew well, they look at this and go, these people have no idea what they're talking about. I'm tuning you out right now, immediately. And so I want to be very clear on this. As we engage in this, we look at Sarah, we look at the new covenant. This is a principle you have to understand. You have to be grounded on this. And I'm going to tell you, if you are not grounded on this, you're going to turn into a dumpster where the enemy is going to start heaping piles of theological garbage within you. You will open a door. I promise you that. I've seen, I've seen what it looks like out there. I've seen the topography of the land of what the enemy is doing. And it is frightening. And I don't want you getting caught in that. All right? All right. Now, as we continue, we're going to see, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is a new covenant. So it goes on and says in verse 32, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now I put the Hebrew up here so that you can see. Lo habarit. Lo habarit, it means no, not, like, the kaf or the chaf means like, berit, the covenant. Okay? The, the prophet, the words here could not be clear. Go back and look at Sinai, look at the covenant given, guess what? This new covenant is not like that one. It's different. It's completely different. The question is, how so? How is this covenant different? Well, here's what's interesting. As we continue, he immediately answers that. 
He shows us how it's different. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Ah, I will put my Torah in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Powerful. First change. Moving from the old covenant, moving from Hagar to Sarah is location. See, the law had a specific location under the old covenant. Do you remember? The stone tablets. The law was written. This is how the law was preserved. It was etched into stone. And, into stone, and this was its home. But it's not just on stone tablets. Because these tablets, the Aseret HaDevarim, had a home. And what was that home? It was the Beit HaMikdash. Okay, the temple of God. And this specifically where the, 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 the Torah and the commandments were kept were in the Kodesh HaKodeshim, behind the veil, the holy of holies, the most literally sacred spot on planet earth. The most sacred spot on planet earth. This was the home of the Torah. And we're told this in, in Deuteronomy 31. We're told, so you have the Aseret HaDevarim, the Ten Commandments. This is the heartbeat of Torah was housed in the Ark of the Covenant, the Aron, Berit, right? So it was in this Ark. What's interesting, this will mean more as we continue, but what's interesting is you see the Caribbean, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant laid out like this, and there's two Caribbean coming over that. This is where God spoke with his people. This is where God spoke with Moses from between the Caribbean. We're told in Psalm 80, Psalm 99, he dwells between the Caribbean. So you're talking about, presence of God and his commandments laid on there and what was laid up against the ark of the covenant was the whole Torah read Deuteronomy 31 this is its home this is where it is okay but under the new covenant what happens move it it has been moved into us I want you to think about something for a second what are the implications of that if what I'm telling you is true, and it is, that under the old covenant, the actual home where it resided, where the Torah resided, was in the Holy of Holies in a physical temple, what are the implications of the Lord moving the law into us? What does that mean? Well, that would mean that you now are the temple of God. That's what that would mean. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. I want you to think about something. All you need to do is look at history of Israel. Look at when Babylon came in and destroyed the temple. Look at what happened when Antiochus Epiphanes came in during Hanukkah. Or why we celebrate Hanukkah. It was because Israel sinned. And what did he do? He destroyed the temple. I mean, there's a reality to that. And we're supposed to... Shake and tremble in fear, knowing this is real. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Oh, for the temple of God is holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. You think of it, it's holy. Which temple you are. Now, I want you to think about, you have a Jew. Think about how crazy this is. You have a Jew speaking to uncircumcised Gentiles. There's no question. Read 1 Corinthians. 
He's speaking to uncircumcised Gentiles, and he's calling them the Beit Hamikdash. That is insane. That is insane. You, I challenge you. Go through the Tanakh and tell me where you find the prophets going out or all, any righteous man running around telling their own brothers, their Jewish brethren, hey, you're the Beit Hamikdash. You're the holy temple of God. You will not find it. It doesn't exist anywhere. This is something that was revealed. This is something, this massive change, this radical change happened in the new covenant. Man, it talks about, talk about putting things into perspective for us. About the beauty, the, uh, the superiority of the new covenant versus the old. Let me show you one more example. I could show you others, but 2 Corinthians, Paul says in 6.15, What accord has Mashiach with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. Now he is quoting directly out of the heart of Torah. Paul is quoting from the book that Christians run for their life from. He's quoting from Leviticus. Okay, he's quoting from Leviticus, the heart of Leviticus, and he says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. Now, what was the point of the temple? Have them make me a sanctuary that I, what, might dwell among my people. This is the point, Exodus 25, 8. And Paul's quoting them, telling them, you are the temple of God, and he's dwelling in you. And I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, that was the very mark of the temple. It was the very evidence that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was among his people. That's what it was. And now under the new covenant, oh my goodness, you literally are supposed to be the temples of God. I wonder, are your temples clean? Are our temples, are you as scrupulous and as careful with your temple as the Jewish people have been with their physical temples? I mean, that's a frightening thought. It's a thought that you need to go home and meditate on, the reality of it. Because do not forget the words of Paul. If you defile the temple, you're done. You will be destroyed. You will be taken out. We are supposed to have the fear of God. And I mean, the words that Paul speaks, it strikes fear. It makes me think and go back, oh, oh Lord Yeshua, have mercy. I need to be in a better place. I need to purify. And what idols are you bringing into your temple? What things of the world are you exalting higher than the Messiah Yeshua? What things are taking precedence in your time? What things matter more? Most of us, we, we don't like to think about it because it's too real. And it would require change. And you know what? Some of us are not willing to give up our idols because we love them. Well, there's a price that's going to be paid someday. It's coming. Judgment is coming. And God will destroy those temples. Now, we look at these changes, what God did, what Yeshua did in this great sacrifice. And you think about, well, how did the Spirit come upon man and become literally a, how did man become a temple how did the spirit even write in the law how did all this happen i mean you got to think about it you know for every action there's a reaction there's a reason this took place this is the secret and we need to know it 
The answer to that is faith. Explicitly, faith in Yeshua makes the new covenant possible. Faith in Yeshua relocates the Torah, relocates the Aseret HaDevarim from tablets to stone into your heart. This is what it does. And Yeshua proves this point as we get into John chapter 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of Maim Chaim, living water. And I'm going to tell you, go and read the prophets, and we're actually going to look at this, not today, but later on. The prophets, when they speak of water, and this is why Yeshua is consistent with the prophets, they speak of water, it's in the context of the Holy Spirit. It is in the context of the Holy Spirit. So many times we see this in, in, in the Tanakh. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, oh, whom those believing in him would receive. Now think about that statement. How do we get that Spirit? It's through faith. In Yeshua, and read Acts 10, go back there, and when Peter is literally preaching the pure milk of the word, he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching Yeshua, uh, crucified and resurrected, and his audience, uncircumcised Gentiles, are hearing this, they believe in their heart, and the Holy Spirit gets poured out on on the spot, as Peter is even speaking, because they believed. And Peter's friends could not handle it, they were overwhelmed, they marveled. That the gift of the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Literally, God inhabited their temples. That's what he did. And it happened this way. Through faith. You want to talk about that kind of faith that Yeshua talks about that will move mountains? Yeah, come and have God inhabit your being. Nothing would be impossible. I mean, if God is for you, no one can be against you. When God's inhabiting us when he's inhabiting your temples so when we put our faith in yeshua we just lay this out we put our faith in yeshua there's a reaction he gives of his spirit okay and from that spirit being given to us then that spirit in turn writes his torah on our hearts and on our minds you just follow this out all the way through now that is really interesting when you consider What happened in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant? Follow me for a second. This is fascinating. In Exodus 31, 18, we read, When God had made an end of speaking with Moshe on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now think about this. It was literally, so now we know how these commandments, because remember, at Mount Sinai, they were audibly spoken, but they were preserved. That, that audio didn't just keep recycling over and over again. He preserved his word by literally etching it into stone. And now we are told that his law, his commandments, were etched into stone through the vehicle of his finger. It is the finger of God. Well, this gets super interesting as you go to the New Testament. And it talks about the finger of God. And interestingly enough, we find Matthew and Luke... They're speaking of the exact same story, which is not uncommon with the Gospels. They're recording the exact same story. And they reveal something amazing about the finger. And so what I want to do is I want to take you to the Gospel of Luke first. And I want to show you how Luke records this story. It's very specific, okay? And just as a backdrop, you know, Yeshua has been accused of casting out demons by the ruler of demons. Well, he does not leave that going unanswered. He responds, and this is how he responds. 
If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now think about this. The same finger that etched in the righteousness, the holiness of his word, of his commandments into stone tablets, Yeshua comes on the scene and is casting out devils with that finger. Well, let me show you how Matthew records this. This is where it really all comes together. But if I cast out demons, oh, by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Spirit of God. We just learned something. The finger of God is the Spirit of God. Well, how amazing is that? Because now we understand at Mount Sinai, when God etched into stone tablets the commandments of the Lord, it was the Spirit of God that literally etched them. How appropriate is that? That under the new covenant, it is the same spirit etching into our hearts the same law. Powerful. Powerful. So already we see. I mean, we're just a little bit into this. And already we see some amazing differences. But we also see some amazing similarities. The difference is it was on stone tablets. Well, now it's not. It's on my heart. The difference was there was a time under the old covenant that the dwelling presence of God rested in the Beit Hamidash, a physical temple. Now it rests in us who believe, who have faith. And then we have similarities. We have things that are same. The same spirit that etched the law into stone tablets, that's the same exact spirit that etches the law into our hearts today. You think of the same spirit Try to wrap your mind around this. And what it really means to be a servant of God, to be a believer in Yeshua. The same spirit that dwelt in the Holy of Holies, that when Moses would go in and talk to him from between the Caribbean and come out and his face is glowing. That same spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is the same spirit that dwells in you. It is powerful. It's a whole different revelation of who we are in the Lord Yeshua. We're children of God. What that means, that is infinite power. You can kill this body, but you cannot kill us. We'll be resurrected. I want to go back now to Jeremiah. He's not done. He has more to say about this Brit Chadashah, this new covenant. And this is what he says in verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Continuing on in verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor. Interesting. And every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Now you think about this. This is a significant benefit that we get within in the new covenant. The fact that we can actually know God. That we can understand his character. You want to understand the ultimate expression of relationship? It's the Brit Hadashah. The ultimate expression of being in relationship with God is the new covenant. And it was all made possible through faith in Yeshua. Through the Holy Spirit literally writing his law. Upon our hearts. Isn't that interesting? He tells them he's going to give them a new covenant. Behold, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And the very next thing we read is that, oh, he's going to write our law 
into our hearts and minds. And the very next thing he says after I'm going to write my law into your hearts and minds, he then says, no longer will you teach anyone. You're all going to know me. I want that to register in your brain for a second. To write his law in our hearts is to get to know God. Now, I'm going to tell you, this becomes very problematic for those who are antinomian. For those who are anti-Torah, for those who are anti-law, who believe that the law is thrown away, that the law, it is, it is just a pure curse, and it has nothing to do with the believer who is under the new covenant. In fact, many Christians will step under the new covenant and say, it is my obligation to reject the law. Otherwise, I'm not in the new covenant. That is, read the prophecy. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Without even realizing it, what they are saying is they don't want relationship with God. They don't want to know God. They don't want to know him. Isn't it fascinating that the Spirit of God writing his law upon our hearts, that's what facilitates and nurtures relationship? Think about that. I mean, talk about having to rewire and recalibrate our thought process. Through the writing of the law, we get to know the Lord's likes. We get to know his dislikes. We get to know what he loves and what he hates. I mean, that's the ultimate marriage. It's the ultimate form of communication. It's the ultimate form of conflict resolution. But not if I'm not willing to hear, how can anything be resolved? You know, when me and my wife and I, we, when we went through uh, marriage counseling, one of the things, they could, you didn't even stop talking about it. Conflict resolution. Communication. And essentially stood on the platform and basically said, listen, if you don't communicate, you're divorced. Just give it time. Without communication, you're going to end up in divorce. Isn't that interesting? How apropos, when you think of God's form of communication to us today, is speaking to us through his spirit, his Torah. That is relationship. It brings us deeper, closer into him, so that we know him. So we can actually get to know him. And guess what? This is exactly what the New Testament stresses. John, in his little epistle, says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. That is amazing. How do you know you have relationship with him? I mean, how many times you'll hear Christians say, well, Don't talk to me. I have a relationship with God. Everything's fine. Really? Do you know him? How do you know that you know him? It'll be interesting. Ask your friends, how do you know that you know him? Yeah, who's that guy's name we were just talking about last week? It's, um, he's a guy, he's an awesome evangelist. Ray, Ray Comfort? Am I right? Can you help me out? Okay. Have you ever seen his methodology of going out and preaching the gospel and getting challenging people? How do you know whether you're going to heaven or not? How do you, how do you know the Lord essentially? It comes down, he preaches the Ten Commandments. Really, have you, have you stolen lately? Are you a thief? Have you committed adultery? He goes through all these. Think about what he's doing. He's challenging. Do you know the Lord? We're too afraid to go there. We're too afraid to go there. I mean, it's the truth. But the only way that you will know that you know him is to do a self-audit and say, am I walking in his commandments? But what happens? <laughs> you think it's a peculiar coincidence 
that the very thing that the enemy has gone out in these last days is to take the commandments away from the believers so that they don't know that they don't know. They think they're in relationship with God, but they really are not told the truth that, oops, I am not in relationship with the Lord, and I don't know him. I mean, this attack is calculated, it's strategic, and it is deadly. The enemy coming to strip out the Torah out of the church is going to equal death. I promise. And look at what John goes on to say. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And be very clear on this. He's not talking about atheists. He specifies right off. He who says, I know him. These are professed believers. These are believers in Jesus. Believers in Yeshua who are going out. No, no, I confess him. He is my Lord. But he says, if you do that, but you're not keeping his commandments. He's a liar and the truth is not in him. There's no truth. I'm going to challenge you. When you go and see just go and look at the character of all the righteous men that have lived. Old Testament and New Testament. Look at the character. Look at their desires. And what you find, they pined after God's commandments. They yearned to know him more. They wanted to know more. Moses in Exodus 33. Now therefore I pray. He's speaking to the Lord. If I have found grace in your sight, show me your way. Show me your way that I might know you. Isn't that amazing? Show me your Derek. Show me your way. There's a purpose behind it. I want to know who you are. I need to know who you are. You go to Psalm 103. It says, he made his ways known to Moses. You want to know what those ways are? Go read the Torah. That's how we know. I mean, you think about the gravity of this topic in this situation. The Lord revealed his ways to Moshe. It's what we call the Torah today. And it's what some people have been told, they've been lied to, that it is anathema from the new covenant. It is the exact opposite. It's actually walking in the new covenant. It's embracing the new covenant. I mean, how many times you read Psalm 119, uh, 18, verse 18? Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your Torah. Open my eyes. The cry of all the righteous men is open my eyes. I need to know. Why? Because they want to know him. But for me to reject the law is to say, I reject your character, Lord. I reject who you are. I don't want to know who you are. We want to walk according to the dictates of our own heart. See, we want to create our own gods. And we put a Jesus bumper sticker on it, and we're okay. Now, after looking at this passage... We could look at many, many others. We realize the new covenant is anything but license to sin. I mean, we're not called to walk away from the law of God. It's the exact opposite. We're called to relationship. And the Torah facilitates that relationship. It's God's form of communicating to us. Paul says, I would not have known sin, the things that God hates. I want to know those things unless the law had said, thou shall not covet. Thou shall not covet. I want you to think about something for a moment. As you get into the 15th chapter of Matthew, Yeshua, Yeshua's apostles are being accused of defiling their temples because they ate with unwashed hands. And so Yeshua, uh, that does not go unanswered. He comes back and he says, listen, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. The things that proceed from the mouth, this is what he says, the things that proceed from the mouth come from the heart. 
follow that to its logical conclusion. If that is true, and the new covenant is all about that he would write his Torah on our hearts, and the things which proceed from the mouth come from the heart, what will come out of our mouths? The Torah. Think about it. If that's the new covenant, it's written in us, we will become Deuteronomy 6. We will talk of his righteousness, his commandments, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, and when we rise up. This is what will happen. So do you know if you know him? Because we will be pro-Torah. We will believe, we'll be believers in Yeshua that are pro-Torah. I want to move on to our next component of the new covenant. And that is the mediator. You know, under the old covenant, obviously, it's Moshe. Moses was the mediator of that covenant, even up to the days of Yeshua. But that is not the case now. There is a new covenant that has been enacted. And the writer of Hebrews articulates this. He says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that may be burned with fire, to the blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. Now, there's no debate here. What did he just do? He took us back to Mount Sinai. He's looking at the old covenant. And he specifically starts out, look at the first verse, look at the first uh, sentence in verse 18. You have not come to the mountain. We have not come to Hagar. We have not come to the old covenant. We haven't come to Mount Sinai. We go on in verse 20. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moshe said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is what's amazing. I mean, for now, if, if some of you lie in the camp that you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, great. It's not that big of a deal. But regardless, this writer, whoever it is, and even if it's Paul, is absolutely perfectly consistent with what Paul is saying in Galatians 4. And that is worthy of note. Where Paul is looking at the Jerusalem that it now is, and it is in bondage, and he's turning everyone's heads to look up. He's turning the Galatians, look up, because we're part of the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, now you have a Jew writing to fellow Jews, and he's telling his own brother, look up. We're not come to this mountain. We've been called to something else. We've been called to a new covenant who is, you know, as, as Paul would say, the mother of us all to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now here's the clincher we get to verse 24, to Yeshua, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. There is a new mediator. It is the Messiah Yeshua. He mediates between God and man. And that's why he says in John 14, says, No man comes unto the Father but by me. He was the way, the truth, and the life. Right? This is who he is. Paul says the same thing in Timothy 2.5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Messiah, Yeshua. Now, when you think about Yeshua being the mediator and what that really means... I mean, we now have a mediator, think about it, who has unlimited power. He has unlimited power. He has unlimited authority. 
All things that the Father has are His. All authority has been given to Him, not just here, but in heaven also. Here we have a mediator whose wisdom cannot be measured. Here you have a mediator whose love is incomparable. You cannot compare the love that He has for us to anyone else that has ever existed. You cannot find it. I mean, you want to talk about a beautiful mediator, a superior covenant. Now, Moses, bless his heart, he was a true servant of God, faithful to the end, and loved the Lord, an awesome and holy man of God. But he would be the first to tell you he's nothing compared to Yeshua. Nothing. Now, talk about an upgrade. I'm sorry, that's not a renewed covenant. That's not even close. That is a brit chadashah. That is a brand new covenant. All right, so let's just kind of take a quick audit on what we've seen thus far. You know, under the new covenant, the law has been given a new address. See, the dwelling presence of God, it has moved. And we are now called the temple of God. And we have a new mediator. There's a lot that has changed. There's some that is, that is similar, that is the same. We have the same spirit doing the work. But there's a lot that is significantly different. I want to move on to one more category today. And we're not going to get through it today, but at least we're going to start it. And that is the priesthood. You know, under the Old Covenant, obviously, we just talked about it. It was the Aaronic priesthood. They were the ones to serve as Kohanim. They are the ones that kept the people in right relationship with God. They're the ones that confessed the sins of Israel over the goats. They're the ones that literally proclaimed, you clean and you're unclean. And if you're a leper, you got to go outside the camp. This was from the priest. It was the priest that made the declaration of whether you got to dwell in the camp or not in the camp. All right? However, under the new covenant, we have a different priesthood. A completely different priesthood. And fortunately for us, the writer of Hebrews also picks up on this fact as well. And so we're going to take a look at this. And I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 7. And this is what we read. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, I want to stop here because this gets really, really interesting. Number one, he brings Melchizedek to the table. And I'm going to tell you, for me, and you know, it's just opinions. Everybody is entitled the most mysterious character in all of the Bible, for me, is Melchizedek. Very, very mysterious. And I will also add to that, one of the most profound typologies of Yeshua you will find anywhere is Melchizedek. And you're going to see just in this passage why. But the writer is bringing Melchizedek to the table, and the first thing he notes is he is the king, the Melech, of Salem. Salem, or it's, it's a derivative of Shalom. And you're going to see it's peace. And you think about this. He's the king of peace. Okay, this is people with the Jerusalem, Salem, Yerushalayim. That this is typically interpreted as or defined as the city of peace. And so you hear they have this Melchizedek, the king of Salem. But he's not just a king. He's a priest. Now this is very, very unusual. He's priest of the most high God. Let me tell you why this is unusual, because you will never find anywhere in Scripture where these two offices come together. You will never find the kings of Israel serving as Kohanim. And you will certainly not find the Kohanim, the Kohen Gadol, serving as a Melech, as a king. 
These two offices were compartmentalized by God himself. So this is very, very unusual. And to a Jew, you would immediately would grab your attention that he's saying these things. You'd be like, whoa, these offices, they don't come together. All right? Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And he's talking about Genesis 14. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. So here you have Abraham. Do you notice how great this Melchizedek is? Abraham, okay, the father of the faith. This he is tithing to him. That is an amazing concept to me. So first being translated king of righteousness. And what it means first being translated, meaning his name, Melchizedek. It actually is a compound word. Melech is king and Zedek is righteousness. This is his name. This is why it says it's first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Absolutely amazing. All these things that we learned. Okay, so he is a king. but He's not just any king. He's the king of peace. He is the king of righteousness. Oh, and he's the Cohen. He's the priest. He's the Cohen of God Most High. Absolutely phenomenal as we dig into this. Now, the fact that the writer, as I mentioned, is bringing Malkitzedek to the table, he is doing this because he's setting this up. This is very intentional, very purposeful, and uh, the purpose gets more and more um, overt as you continue. He actually, and I'm not going to show you the quote from Hebrews, but I'm going to take you to the actual quote of where he draws from. But the writer in Hebrews actually brings out Psalm 110. This is why he's talking about Malkitzedek. I just want to take you there. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord. Now you have to stop because this again, this is terminology you just don't typically see in the Bible. The Lord saying to my Lord. And this is the Tetragrammaton. yod heh vav heh Speaking to Adonai. Speaking to the Lord. But listen to what David's saying here. and What he's witnessing. And you know, David is a prophet. Now how he got this prophecy, whether in the ear or whether he saw it. Regardless of it, David's looking on and he's seeing the father speak to his master. David, the king of Israel, calls him my master. This is none other than the Messiah, Yeshua. This is the son of God. And so David's witnessing the father having a conversation with the son of God, with his only begotten son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We're going to drop down to verse 4. And the Lord has sworn and will not relent... You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Think about the implications of that statement. See, because the Messiah, absolutely hilarious when you see Yeshua messing with the Jewish leaders of the day. And in Matthew 22, uh, he goes in craftily, he asks him, I have a question for you. The Messiah, whose son is he? And they respond, well, that's easy. He's the son of David. Really? Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? They couldn't even answer it. They did not answer it. Brilliant. How does David in the spirit call him Lord? That's an interesting thing. Now, I, I, I share that with you because I want to be very clear. The passage in Psalm 110 is about the Mashiach ben David. The coming Messiah, the king of Israel. The one who would sit as king. He is the heir to the throne. But what does it say about him? It's very unique. You can't find it. Ah, It says that he is going to be a priest. 
Again, those two offices, they're compartmentalized. They're not allowed to be joined together. But with Yeshua, something totally insane happens. And you know, the prophet Zechariah picks up, picks up on this in chapter 6. You can actually read, he prophesies that the Lord is going to make peace between those two offices. And the Messiah, the Mashiach, he is going to come. And yes, he is going to build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. And so this is mind-blowing. This is debilitating. If you're living in the first century and you're reading this stuff, and you're saying, yes, this is now the situation. We now have a king and a priest. A priest who sits on a throne. I mean, that is a marvel. Okay, so the, what the writer, okay, and I want you to understand this. The writer is very brilliant in Hebrews. He is purposely said, he's strategically laying this stuff out because he knows without it, the statement that he is going to make, that we're going to see him make very soon, is so outrageous and caused so much controversy. In fact, it's causing controversy today that he knew what he had to do. He had to approach this very craftily, very carefully, and lay fundamentally some important groundwork so that we could have understanding of the actual situation. And so he goes on and he says in verse 3, without father, now he's talking about Melchizedek, okay? We're getting the characteristics of Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like, this is mind-blowing, like the Son of God remains a Cohen continually. Absolutely mind-blowing. So he brings another element, another characteristic of this Malkitsetic. Okay, he's a king. He's a king of righteousness, a king of peace. He is a, pri- and, 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 and he is a priest that sits on a throne. I mean, now we have, well, he doesn't have beginning of days or end of days. I mean, that, that's just crazy, right? When you think about it. Well, isn't that interesting? Because that's exactly what was prophesied of the Mashiach ben David. This Messiah, this Jewish Messiah was to come. Was not to have beginning of days or end of days. And this is, we read this in Micah 5 too. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Literally, olam. Okay, so mikademi me olam. Literally means everlasting. He is going forth. And this is why Yeshua, he eternally preexisted. He said, I'm the manna that comes down from heaven. We know that all things that were made were made through him. This is not a situation where God manifested his Messiah, poof, as he was manifested in the flesh. And he just came into being. That is not a true. There's so much scripture on this, it's not even funny. He eternally preexisted. And see, this is where the writer is going. He's setting the stage of this awesome Messiah who is not just a king, but he is also a priest. Now, what's going to be interesting as we continue, we're going to get into one of the most controversial statements, thing that is so hard for people to grab onto. Um, This is where it's going to get heavy. But unfortunately, we're not going to cover that this week. So... (laughs) You're going to have to wait for that.